This episode is brought to you by Rad Dudes Who Love Nature. Nature isn't out there someplace. You don't have to go to a national park. You don't have to go to a forest. It's always, it's always all around us. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Uh, this is one of your co-hosts tonight, Billy Brown, um, with David B. Williams, who's a writer and naturalist out of Seattle. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about his work. Before I get going, uh, a good reminder to everybody, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Uh, feel free to tweet at us at urbanwildlifecast. We've still got a Facebook page. I admit we it has not been that active, <laughs> but you can find us there. Um, and an alert will reach me or Tony. Uh, we can get back to you that way. Um, and uh, yeah, that's about it. I think uh, and I should shamelessly promote my book, Exploring Philly Nature, A Guide for All Four Seasons. <laughs> if you don't have it yet, it's the holidays. Buy it for everybody yeah. you know. <laughs> Thanks. Speaking to a fellow okay. author, he can... <laughs> relate to the need for, for i know i know the feeling i know the feeling you got to do it no no one loves your book as much as you do and no one's going to be as good a salesperson as you are so. <laughs> thanks well you've not you haven't met my parents but they're <laughs> <laughs> okay um but uh there you go um so david um thanks for joining us um I, what we'll start with is just tell people who you are and, and what you do Great. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Billy. Um, it was fun to, first off, to say just to discover you. I mean, I know there's a lot of people like us out there who see the world through natural history, live in an urban environment, and recognize that nature isn't out there someplace. You don't have to go to a national park. You don't have to go to a forest. It's always it's always all around us. So to find a kindred spirit uh, is always a pleasure. So it's great to be here. Um, so yeah, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I've lived in Seattle for most of my life. I lived in Utah for about nine years, where I was a par- actually was a national park ranger at Arches National Park in southern Utah. And one of the things I did when I was there and really sort of got me thinking about this subject was. Working with people who people come into the parks and they ask all sorts of questions. You know, what's that bug? Why is the rock red? What's this? What's that? And I would always encourage them to actually ask those questions when they got back home. And exactly what I just said, the stories of nature in a city are just as interesting as any stories of nature in a national park. And I would actually argue, even though I lived in southern Utah, that the geology of Seattle is much more interesting than the geology of Utah. Um, Southern Utah may be incredibly beautiful, but it doesn't have that dynamic that we have, that we have earthquakes and landslides and volcanoes. You might consider that scary. I consider it interesting. Uh, So that's sort of where I got into it was thinking about being in a national park. And then I moved to Boston with my wife and we went from a population density of like two people per square mile to 20,000 people per square mile. And I lost that connection to nature until 
one day I was on the Harvard campus and walking around and looking at the buildings. And one of the older buildings on campus has this beautiful base of what in the East Coast you call brownstone, but in Southern Utah, we call red rock. And I remember going up to the building and rubbing it and having this accumulation of sand in my hand and having this epiphany that, oh, the brownstone and the red rock are the same thing. And that's sort of an entryway sort of my gateway drug into urban nature was... And I'll say the brownstones, it's a it's such a common stone that in, I mean, in Philadelphia, they use the term, but I think of it especially in New York, it just refers to a kind of building. Um, yeah. Because the that kind of sand, was it a sandstone, I'm assuming, it was used it's so much sandstone, in, yeah. in, in the facades of, 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 um, of sort of taller row houses or townhouses. Uh, I presume at the end of the, the 19th century or so. Yeah, exactly. They were all over Boston, New York, Philly, I mean, up and down to the Eastern seaboard. They had that. And much of the rock was quarried in Connecticut or New Jersey, um, 200 million year old sandstone, which is coincidentally about the same time period as sandstones being deposited in much of Southern Utah. Uh, they have no relationship to each other, except that they're, sand with a little bit of rust in them to make them red or brown and east coast red in the in the uh, utah so but that was really that's what got me into trying to really connect more with urban nature nice um yeah i think i i've i don't know if I've ever had this this described my own process in this in this uh, podcast it's been a really long time if i have but um i know for me it was uh it was specifically looking for for reptiles and amphibians. Um, people who are listening to this might not already be fans of mid twentieth century reptile and amphibian <laughs> like uh, 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 literature <laughs> memoirs. Uh-huh. Um, Shocking! <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> Snakes, the keeper and the kept. Um, you know, works by like uh, by by Caulfield and Pope and. Um, all these people who herpetologists or people who are into snakes would know, but there's all these books about people who are who are maybe they're working for zoos. They're going out like around the four corners of the planet, collecting interesting stuff and bringing it back. And so there's all these adventures out in in impressively distant and different places, um, and catching just like you know the coolest things you could catch. Uh, and I was living in Philadelphia, and I'm looking around. I'm like, well, I'm catching some snakes here. Why isn't anybody writing about this? And yes. uh, that got me starting a blog, which is still up there, even though I haven't written anything in it for 10 years. Um, but phillyherping.blogspot.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and so little by little, I was like, you know, I could find snakes and salamanders in the city. Um, I'll, I'll keep doing that and keep writing about it. Um, yeah, it's a, and, and pretty soon, even though you still, I'm going to guess you still don't go, David, you still go on vacations. Um, oh, yeah. Outside of Seattle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but occasionally rarely but yes <laughs> <laughs> but you don't turn it off when you get back to seattle you know um, yeah absolutely i mean and i think it's i mean exactly the same thing that you felt billy in the sense of it's out there and who there, i'm sure there are other people writing about but i hadn't come across people writing about this sort of idea of building stone geology that you could tell the story of a place both the natural and human history, merely by looking at the stone that's used in an urban environment. And to me, that was just, again, a fun way to connect 
people to place. And that's, I think, what we're both doing. We're trying to help people develop relationships and connections. Um, thinking that I've read some, I was trying to think what the names were of the folks, but uh, I feel like Seattle's become like a hotbed of urban nature writing. Um, you've got, and I'm just double checking names, Kelly Brenner. Um, yeah, Kelly um, does a lot of great stuff here. Yeah. And then um, the, what's oh, the person who wrote Crow Planet? Um, Lyanda Lynn Howe. There you go. Um, so, so sort of uh, in the in the burgeoning field of of urban nature writing, um, Seattle's a fun place to be. Yeah, and I think there's a lot. You know, I, I think it's you know people are so aware of the outdoors here, and you know you know being surrounded by mountain chains and having a a big salt water body to the west of us, having uh, fresh water to the east, at least east of where I live right now. Uh, yeah, it's just there's so much natural history around that you can, I mean, I've been lucky enough, it hasn't happened this, the, the, recently, but to wake up in the morning with bald eagles calling in the trees next to our house. And we don't live in any place special. We just happen to have a really nice grove of trees, our yard and a couple north but to wake up to the call of bald eagles you know that's yeah. pretty astounding and 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 inspiring and a wonderful thing it is um it is and they have a funny call too they don't sound as as they, they never sound as majestic as we want them to exactly um. yeah it's i always think of it sort of as unctuous squeaking and like yeah like oil that bird and I just think it was sort of sort of a, a giggling chicken or something like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in, 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 if you if you're thinking of popular movies, um, what the audio folks tend to do is uh, swap in a red tailed hawk call whenever they yeah. show an eagle, um, because red tailed hawks have like the coolest cry of any bird there is. Um, yeah. And and are the eagles it doesn't quite match their 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 appearance, their majesty. Right. And I don't think it actually makes a difference what the bird is. They're going to substitute in a red-tailed hawk. Exactly. <laughs> they have such a great call. And it's just, you know, anytime you do it, I mean, I'm sure you're, you're like me. Yeah, you pick up on that. Like, okay, there's the red-tailed hawk. You know, they'll be in the Amazon. It's a red-tailed hawk. They'll be in Antarctica. <laughs> it's a red-tailed hawk. I mean, come on, people. Yeah, it's not yeah. that hard. It isn't, no, and it's, it's, it happens to me a lot with frog um calls is oh, that if, if it's a nighttime scene um anywhere in the world i'll be listening like does that sound right is that is that a spring peeper in like vietnam <laughs> you know like right. um and, and so it's it it, it I, you can't blame them too much it's they you know they they're trying to please 99.99% of the population and we're in the other you know 0.001% yeah. um so uh you know, we'll, we'll t you've written about a bunch of stuff, um, but one of the things that caught my eye, uh, it, it, I guess coincidental with me learning more about Philly geology um, in my little corner of the world, uh, which is a lot more boring. <laughs> We've got, we're, we're, Philly's on the, the coastal plain, which doesn't have a lot of rock at the surface because it's mostly sediment that's been relatively recently deposited. Yeah. Um, and then we're on the Piedmont, we're on the Wissahick and Schist Formation, um, which is a whole lot of beautiful but but metamorphic rock um, of a couple types mostly. Um, schist, uh, which uh, is kind of like wavy but flakes apart really easily and has a lot of shiny mica in it, so it could be kind of pretty. And then 
nice G-N-E-I-S-S, which mm-hmm. is kind of wavy and pretty. Um, but uh, it, I was thinking about that when you were, I was talk, you were, when I was reading a little bit about your work, I was thinking I grew up about how I grew up in, in central Ohio, um, mm. where I think they probably use a lot more limestone. Um, and uh, once you get into limestone, you get into more interesting marine fossil possibilities. Um, and so what were you noticing when you were walking around Seattle looking at the buildings? Yeah, I mean, it's, that's a good question. I mean, one, oddly, even though Seattle is very geological and we our most recent earthquake was... 2001, and we obviously have a lot going on around here. We don't have good rock at the surface either. So we've always, so when after 1880, Seattle had its great fire in 1889, you know, every cool city has a great fire. And um, so ours is then, and they start seeking, they pass legislation. So you have to build with brick or stone. And so, uh, so we had a lot of brick in this area because during the last ice age, the as the ice moved in and out of this area, um, it left behind layers of clay that they then mined to use for bricks. So we have a very extensive brick story. We don't have much rock. And so we started to, excuse me, to import rock. And one of the ones we imported, as you said, comes from the Midwest. And in particular, the Salem limestone, which is quarried in Indiana. And it's a 330 million year old limestone i'm sure there's a bunch of it in philly that was used in philly that was deposited when what we think of as the midwest was located roughly about at the equator covered in a caribbean like sea and in that sea you had lots of invertebrates so you had um, brachiopods that look like clams but don't move they're sessile and they they you know they that shell that opens up there are uh, bryozoans, which are a colonial animal, looks sort of like a rice check cereal, very that same sort of similar size. Lots of, um, what are they called? Escape, escape me. Uh, crinoids, which looks like a sea star on a stem. And so when you look at those buildings, you will find the fossils in them. You'll find the crinoids, the bryozoans, the, uh, you'll find corals. It's just, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I lead building stone walks in Seattle and and we don't have great Salem limestone. I'm, I'm betting that you all have much better Salem limestone than we do in terms of more fossil rich. And it's just, yeah, it's stunning. You talk to people, I've, I've taken people out who've been walking by a building for 20, 30 years, you know, a thousand, who knows how many thousand times they've walked by it and never stopped to look. And it just opens their eyes up. And so we have those, we have a German limestone that started coming in in about the 1990s that has a big ammonite, which you know look like the. I'm not sure why I'm showing that to you. Um, look like a big cinnamon roll cut in half. Um, those are pretty, and also has corals and sponges in it. Those are pretty, that's started to be used. There's a Texas limestone that I have no idea why it's up here, uh, but that has some nice fossils. It's much. It's fairly young. Um, so yeah, there's lots of fossils in buildings, and you know, fortunately, there's a bunch of people who've been looking at them all over the country. You'll come across websites of people who've like, oh, here's the fossils of Washington D.C. or Boston or uh, Seattle. So they're they're definitely out there. People who are looking. I know it's poor form to Google in the middle of a conversation, but now um, I have to look building fossils. Yeah, there's a couple of websites I think that are devoted to it and of Philadelphia. Um but the uh, 
not nothing comes up. I'll have to look more into that. Now, I'm guessing if there are any, I mean, there's got to be Salem or Indiana limestone. It's called Salem limestone, Indiana limestone, oolitic limestone. No, in my limestone. head, I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking through what building facades I could think of. Like, we have a lot of brownstone. Um, yeah, we've got a lot of the 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 schist that a, and then more the gneiss that occurs around here ends up as um, as walls. Um, mm-hmm. But not in like nice sheets or nice big blocks that you can, and also that that the metamorphic rock doesn't have much in the way of great, I think fossils that you could find. Yeah. Um, and then um, people have used uh, serpentine, yeah, uh, which it, we have a couple, um, which pops up here and there, but in the Philly area, there's a or just outside the Philly area near the Maryland border and along the Delaware border um, to the south, there are a few serpentine barrens, um, which mm-hmm. are, and serpentine is this rock that as it weathers, um, my understanding of it basically is that it sort of clings to certain nutrients that plants need. And so it ends up stunt, uh, very poor soil for most plants to grow in, but then you end up with specialized plants that can deal with it. Um, and so for the botany folks, the serpentine barrens are just like, like going to the Amazon or something. Um, they yeah, there's, the, there, it's a mag, there's magnesium in it. That's it. Okay. And that's uh, what that's because we have a few areas. I remember learning about it. And then there's a weird, couple of weird spots up in the Cascades, which have very little serpentine, but there's a few, I can think of one that we've been to, my wife and I've been to a bunch. Yeah. And it's just completely different plants yeah. there. Um, but in terms of looking for the Indiana limestone, where it's really used a lot, um, post offices and government buildings. Now, there's a Those certain- are the places that got it. I mean, you can go to almost practically any city that has a large post office, particularly if it's built, say, between the 1880s and the 1920s. It's more than likely built with Indiana limestone or Salem limestone. You know, you just say that I used to work in one of those. Um in a federal building that had a post office on the ground floor and it was built in sort of an art deco style. So it, I think. I bet it, I just look for yeah. a, you know, that whitish buff building and you will, no, no, and you're, you'll, you'll find fossils. You've got it, man. You dialed it in. I, I was, and I'm now I've, I'm going to go <laughs> thinking about it. Um, All right. So you've written a bunch of books though, not just about fossils. Um, what are more, what are more, what, 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 what's got you interested these days? Um, what are you thinking about? Well, my, I've uh, been right now, so my last book was about a human and natural history of Puget Sound, which is the waterway that Seattle is built on and sort of I-5 corridor runs along it. And I'm now working on a book about human and natural history of the Cascade Mountains, which is the chain that runs down the center of the state. And just in Washington state, I'm very much a local writer. I'm not, uh, I mean, I the you know the cascades go from canada all the way to california and i'm I'm just i'm not necessarily disinterested but i'm not necessarily interested in those places so i'm really focused on that so right now i've been working on a chapter about mining in the cascades and and looking at both how post-european settlement came in and mined the mountains but then looking at indigenous use and there's a a mountain pass north of here that has uh 10,000 years of, of of human use in that pass and so i'm writing about that 
Um, and and oh, I'm always interested in trying to bring as many voices and stories as I can. And um, as you well know, and far too many of us know, so many stories start like for Puget Sound. It starts in 1792. George Vancouver discovered Puget Sound. Well, he was only 10,000 years too late. Um, so how do I bring in the indigenous stories to, of place and, and doing what so? What are the indigenous groups there? Um, there's a variety. We have something like 25, I forget the number of tri officially designated tribes in the Puget Lowland where, where we live right now, there's a couple different groups. There's, uh, the Muckleshoot tribe, which is a little bit South. There's Snoqualmie, which is a little bit East. There's Duwamish, which is not federally recognized, but really is uh, they're considered to be the sort of Seattle based. And then across is the Suquamish. So it's it's very complicated here with the the overlay. And this area is prehistoric, did actually not didn't have any tribes. There weren't, it was more watershed family-based, and not and the tribes came into existence with the treaty process in the 1850s uh-huh. when the state and federal government had to figure out a way, how can we take all this land? And the only way you can take the land is if you can find someone to be designated as a chief <laughs> to sign it away. So sadly, those tribes also are the, the trees, interestingly enough, have given the tribes a lot of power also now. Um, there's been a couple of major uh, rulings starting in the 1970s that gave the tribes a phenomenal amount of of power that they're using for uh, really helping with understand and connect that those long-term connections to place. And so I think it, to me, it's, it's a, it's a very hopeful aspect of the story of this place is that the tribes do have more impact on political and ecological decisions. Wonderful. Um, And so uh, for people who haven't been to Seattle um, and you as someone who lived elsewhere and then moved to Seattle, um, what are some of the the what are the you know, wildlife? What, what are sort of the the animals of the city that aren't um, that are that might surprise you for coming from Utah or, or Boston? Everybody's got crows, right? But what do you? Right, have? we've got crows. We've got an abundance of crows. That's not an issue. Um, I think one, as I said earlier, uh, bald eagles. I mean, there's yeah. something like I think during the breeding season on the order of in this area, in the Seattle Lowland, uh, Seattle sort of King County, over a hundred bald eagles in around here. So you see them all the time. You see bald eagles all the time. You see red-tailed hawks all the time. And we were just in our backyard a couple of days ago, and a, and a barred owl flew through uh, the yard. And I've heard the barred owl, and that's a little bit weird or problematic, sort of, because they, with human disturbance, barred owls have expanded their range and. So they were not "quote unquote" naturally here, whatever you, whatever that means. So that's that's a big one. Um, well, slugs, in, in particular, because they in the West Coast they've sort of muscled out the the spotted owls, correct? Correct. Yeah, they've been yeah. muscling out the northern spotted owls, so that's been problematic. Yeah. Um, we have an animal called a mountain beaver. That's a little. I was, I was so hoping you'd mention the mountain beaver. Yeah, they're pretty. They're pretty widespread. I actually need to, to do more research on them. They're pretty. They're an interesting little, little animal. 
but they're not, so people know they they're not like like beavers. Castor canadensis is like this is a big sixty pound animal with a flat tail. Right. Lives in the water. These are these are like a um like a small like a small cat. I mean, these are small, pretty small, probably just a few pounds. Not like be- and we do actually have lots of beaver. The beaver have returned to Seattle. Um, they're pretty. You start see there's so many creeks here, and they they've started to become more widespread. Um, there, in fact, there's the other thing that we have a lot of here is there's actually an urban carnivore research that's done out of the zoo here, and it's amazing if you look at the it it yeah you, know, you can report it. I mean, you know, several thousand reports of coyotes, raccoons, possums, black bear, mountain lion. I mean, it's fox. I mean, you get everything in here into the city. Uh, It's pretty fun. Sorry, I'm still stuck on mountain beavers, man. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) um, It's just, it is a thing that we just, that that doesn't really, as far as I know, the range doesn't extend much east of you. I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. Yeah. You're, you're now going to sort of like cause me to have to look up more about about them. I mean, I know enough that I can usually say, "Oh yeah, those are probably mountain beavers." But um, who knows if I'm sticking my foot in my mouth? I'm going with it right now. But all right, no, that's cool. They, I think they're ranged into California, but they're um, they're just like it's it, it's what I'm saying. Like there's there aren't in Philadelphia. We don't have many things that are just in our area. Um, mm. Like we have, um, I don't know. We have like a a frog, the Atlantic Coast leopard frog, that ranges from like Staten Island down into, or maybe maybe around the, the Long Island Sound, uh, mm. freshwater wetlands down into like um, past us down into through New Jersey. But that's like that's all I can think of. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas I think of um, so yeah. Number one, you've got a a, a, a decent sized uh, rodent. You know, the mountain beaver. Um, I'll put in a pitch for you guys have you guys having some neat garters garter snakes. Um yeah. as a reptile guy, uh, the Puget Sound subspecies of the common garter snake has this pretty blue um uh can have this kind of bluish green coloration to it. Um hmm. that looks pretty I'll have to look more carefully next time I see one. Yep. And then you have the uh um northwestern garter snake, which is another species, which is like this pretty little garter snake. Um not everybody gets as into garter snakes as I do. Um, Yeah, no. Anytime (laughs) I see a snake, I'm excited. So, and then rubber boas, I think. Um, Oh, really? Let me just double check their range. Um, Yeah, rubber boas. It sounds like some kind of toy or something. Uh, Any case, I've I've wanted to to be up there uh, and flip rocks and look for snakes for a long time. I just don't make fun. Yeah, I know. Um, Yeah, I don't know. So, uh, what what topic do you want to go out? It's interesting. I mean, one thing that I've started doing in this survey, you said you had a blog for a while and I sort of did is that I've started doing writing. I guess now it's coming up on almost two years, a weekly newsletter about urban Substack, right? Yeah. Through Substack. And I found that that's been just super fun, but also a great way to engage with people and, and forcing me to get out and just sort of try and make connections and whether it's natural history. I mean, I do a lot of stuff tied in with human history and architecture, which, which I'm very much fascinated by. But I think that I, one thing that gives me 
pleasure is this feeling that there's a there, there are more of us out there i think than we realize that there's a lot of people who do have this interest in urban natural history whether it's by choice or by interest or by both you know that it's like oh i you know i mean for me yeah, maybe ideally I'd be living in a much wilder place, but I'm not. <laughs> and most of us don't. And so that pleasure of finding those stories and that encouraging others to do it. And I think that to me is a big, I, I guess I hope that that's what the newsletter does is by showing these stories and sharing them, then people go and, and, and find them their, themselves. Um, and, you know, for me now, it's like, okay, I need to go, are, what snakes are around here? I mean, I know I've seen garter snakes and I'm sh there's obviously more. And, and I know we've got, um, you know, various frogs and toads around here. And, you know, what, what else can I find? I mean, I found a sound, we were out somewhere and saw a salamander and that was you know, just so wonderful. So, oh yeah, I think the more of us out there um, sharing these stories, the better. I agree. Um yeah, I'm just suppressing the temptation to go on and on about the snakes of the Northwest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you got some fun stuff once you start flipping rocks and seeing what's under them. Um, well, uh, yeah, I guess thank you very much for reaching out. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, to bounce off your point just there, um, it's, uh, you know, I think a, I'm starting to see more generalized I mean, the past 10 years, we're generalized writing about urban wildlife and urban nature. But I yeah. think in a way, we end up with a little bit of a, a a challenge because we all tend to be relatively specialized to the place that we're in. Like, mm -hmm. like you, you and I are respectively are writers about our respective cities and yes. areas. Um, and, uh, and so in one framing of it, a Philly nature writer and a Seattle nature writer don't necessarily um, share a category. Um, it's the the urban part does bring us all together, but it, but we it sort of it can take sort of picking your head up and looking around you know, from you know, to, yeah. to spot each other. <laughs> no, exactly, and and I think yeah. that's a good good point. And I also think it's that we each bring our own speciality to it. You know, obviously, I see the world more through a geological lens. You're seeing it more through your herpetological lens, and and I think that's what's great is that, you know, I think you can, even though I am writing about my place and you're writing about your place, I guess I'd like to think that the stories of our, are of interest, but also inspire others they to, to seek them out. Yeah. Um, and hey, for the, in that inspiration vein, how can people subscribe to your Substack? Uh, the simplest way is probably going to my website, geologywriter.com, and there's a direct link. It's on on that. It's a free uh, newsletter. It comes out every week. Um, the, and I'm all over the place. Last week's was about <laughs> na what I called nano habitat of snow, of walking up 100 feet in elevation and seeing the difference between my house where no snow was being deposited and just going up a hundred feet in elevation and snow being deposited and yeah, thinking about, wow, that's pretty cool. Just the variation of, of the landscape too. And again, it, urban is not like anything. It's not one place. It's filled with microhabitats. Yep. Very true. All right. Well, thank you very much. I hope everybody checks out um, your website and your Substack and also your, your, your books. Um, again, holiday season. <laughs> 
if you know someone in the Northwest, we got some books, you can get them. Um, yeah. All right. Well, well, thanks a lot. And, uh, and have a good night. You too. Be well. Thank you.